many. Again, verse 24, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. They shall show great signs and wonders or miracles, inasmuch that if it were possible, they should deceive the very chosen. Behold, I have told you before. Now, the key words to this famous discourse in the Bible leads us directly into the heart of cultism. Jesus said, don't be deceived, verse 4. Many will come and try and deceive you, verse 5. Verse 11, false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And then in verse 24, the rise of the false Christ and the false prophets. If it were possible, they would deceive even those who are chosen, the church itself. And Christ said, this isn't something I'm telling you just once. I'm telling you before, again, and again. I want you to understand what it is. I'm going to come back again, but the sign of that coming, the ultimate sign, very important point here, is the rise of false Christs, false prophets, and false teachers, who will at the end of the ages speak out in the name of God and lead people into eternal spiritual death. Now, there are many other passages, and our Lord said, Behold, I told you before. He warned us of this multiple times. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, is a classic illustration of this, where Christ said, Beware of the false prophets. They come to you dressed like sheep, but inwardly, that spiritually, they are savage wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and hurled into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now listen carefully, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, these are the false prophets, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out demons. In thy name done many wonderful works. Jesus said, I will profess to them, I never knew you, workers of iniquity. So the false prophets can prophesy in Jesus' name. The false prophets can use his name to cast out demons. The false prophets are the imitators of the genuine prophets. They can even work miracles using the name of Jesus. The power is in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, when I meet them, I will say, leave me. I never knew you. Why? Because they used his name, but they did not believe in him, and they did not preach his gospel. Now, I'm often asked the question, after 30 years of doing this kind of missionary work in the world of the cults and the occult, what is a cult? Well, it's not a dirty word. It's a Latin term, cultus. It simply means a group. But for the purposes of our study of cults in America, we want to point out that a cult is a group of people that is gathered around somebody's interpretation of the Bible. It always claims to be harmonious with Christianity, but it always ends up denying the central doctrine of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. So you have Mormonism, which is gathered around Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. You have Christian Science around Mrs. Eddy. You have the Unity School of Christianity around the Fillmores and Science of Mind or Religious Science around Ernest Holm. You have all of these people interpreting the Bible and saying, this is of God. But when you put it to the test, 
they have a totally different concept of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jesus of Jehovah's Witnesses is really the Archangel Michael, the first and greatest creation of God, a super angel. The Jesus of the Mormons is one God among many gods, and you can become a God yourself through the Mormon priesthood, they teach. The Jesus of the cults is obviously not the Jesus of the Bible. And if you study carefully, you will find that the Jesus of the mind science cults, for instance, which is of the Christian science variety and the unity variety, all divide Jesus from Christ. Jesus is the man, and Christ is the divine idea, or the true deity that is within every man. The Jesus of the spiritists is an advanced medium in the sixth sphere. The Jesus of the theosophist is the reincarnation of the world soul. The Jesus of Edgar Cayce and the Association for Research and Enlightenment is Jesus in one age and Christ through all the ages in previous reincarnations. So the meaning of the term Jesus disappears. In fact, the name Jesus is the union card of the cults. If you couldn't find a cultist who would talk to you about Jesus, then you wouldn't find a cultist that could communicate. They use our vocabulary. They use the vocabulary of Christianity and they use the union card, Jesus Christ. But it's another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, for instance, the Apostle Paul in verse 3 says, I am worried about you, that as the serpent tricked Eve through his subtlety, your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. If somebody comes and preaches to you another Jesus, or you receive a different spirit, or another gospel, you might well go along with it. So there are counterfeit Jesuses, counterfeit Holy Spirits, counterfeit gospels, and the rise of the cults, which has now mushroomed to more than 30 million people in the United States and on our world mission fields in the last 150 years. The rise of the cults is a very direct fulfillment of our Lord's warning. We have been at the end of the ages for almost 2,000 years. Well, we just didn't arrive there because people started writing books on the subject of Jesus coming back again. No. We were told in 1 John chapter 2, little children, it is the last times. You have heard that Antichrist will come. Even now, there are many Antichrists whereby we know it is the last times. Those words were penned almost 2,000 years ago. We're not just arriving at the end of the ages. We've been in the end of the ages all of this time. We are now accelerating towards the consummation of time, the restoration of Israel, the conglomeration of world powers, the atmosphere of general unbelief and antagonism to the Christian gospel. When Time magazine can describe this as the post-Christian era, and when we see the rise of the cults, of the false prophets and the false teachers who speak to us using the name of Jesus but deny the power of Jesus Christ and deny who he is, then we know that we are arriving rapidly at the consummation of time. Now the Bible is explicit in this particular area. We are told to have certain attitudes. Now one of the prevailing attitudes we find today is the attitude of don't say anything about the cults. Whatever you do, don't say anything about them, because if you alienate them, if you tell them what's really going to happen to them for rejecting the Lord Jesus, 
then they're not going to listen to the gospel. Now this is a very dangerous philosophy. It is a non-Christian philosophy. We have today this enormous number of people involved in the cults and in the occult. And the church is not penetrating them with a major witness. And the reason why is because we have turned away from the challenge of the first century. Supposing after the day of Pentecost, we had in Jerusalem said, that was a great sermon, Peter, and we really are overjoyed to see 3,000 people born again into the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord. Now, remember all of you, when we go out from this upper room, don't say one word about the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. Don't offend anybody because we want them to listen to us when we preach the gospel. Do you know where the gospel would be today if that philosophy had been followed? Still around the environs of Jerusalem and a few other minor parts of the world. The early Christians turned the world upside down because they dared to confront evil. Now, the rise of the cults is evil. It uses the vocabulary of Christianity. It uses the name of Jesus. But it has another Jesus, another spirit, and a foreign gospel. You know, the Apostle Paul went even further with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I don't think that people really grasped the significance of what he had to say, but he was warning the Corinthian church. And if these things were written for our warning and instruction, we ought to listen to what he has to say. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, after warning them about the counterfeit Jesus, the counterfeit Holy Spirit, and the counterfeit gospel, he goes on to tell them something else. Verse 13, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves to look like the apostles of Christ. Now you should circle that word transform in your Bible because it's from an old Greek word which means to change the outward appearance and to leave the interior untouched. So what the apostle is telling us is that there are false apostles, people who represent themselves deceitfully as ministers of the gospel. They transform themselves, they change themselves on the outside so that they look like the representatives of Christ. They look like us. They act like us. They sound like us. They're moral. They're ethical. They're dedicated. They're honest. They're sincere. But you can be all of these things and lose your soul if you have no saving relationship to Jesus Christ. There are marvelously dedicated and sincere and ethical and moral atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and people of other religions who really believe sincerely. But that is not going to redeem the soul. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If we believe that, if we believe that neither is there salvation in any other, but there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby you must be saved, Jesus Christ, then we have to count the kingdom of the cults as lost and in desperate need of the salvation that only God can give through the preaching of his word. That's why we're told here in 2 Corinthians 11 that the person behind all of this, the architect of the kingdom of the cults, is actually the prince of darkness. Verse 14, don't marvel about this, says the apostle. Satan himself is transformed. Notice the same word again. 
He looks on the outside as if he were an angel of light. It nowhere says in the Bible he is an angel of light. It says he looks like one. He's changed on the outside so that he may deceive. Do you notice the repetition of this word deceived? Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24, deceived, 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 deceived. False Christ, false prophets, false teachers. Look out, warning, warning, warning to the church. Why did Christ go to all that trouble? Why in the Olivet Discourse did Jesus answer their question directly? What is the sign of your coming? What is the end of the age? Because he wanted to impress upon the church that there is such a thing as deception and that we will be inundated by deception at the end of the ages. Already we see many Protestant denominations who have turned away from the great foundations of the gospel. Already we see pornography tolerated around us on virtually every side. We observe the disintegration of the family structure and we see the rise and multiplication of false Christs, false prophets, and false teachers. Do not then the words of the Apostle Paul come back to us with power? Look at verse 15. Therefore, it is no great thing if Satan's ministers, ah, the people who represent themselves as prophets of God and as spokesmen for God, are actually ministers of Satan and don't even know it. They are deceived themselves, taken captive by him at his will, manipulated into the vocabulary of Christianity, and then sent out to proselytize and evangelize in the name of Jesus. Only it is another Jesus, a counterfeit and a counterfeit spirit and a false gospel. Now, when I talk about things like this, and I have for many years across the country and around the world, people sometimes get very irritated. They say, why are you attacking other people's religions? I'm not. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a professor of comparative religions, I have to respond to the attacks that are made upon Christianity. Otherwise, I am not faithful to my ordination vows, and I am not faithful to the preaching of the cross. It is necessary to accept the risk of being hated, despised, rejected, and persecuted by the very people that you are trying to evangelize. And you can get into this position simply by telling people the truth. Now, one of the great errors around today is the idea of it's unloving to tell people the truth. If you tell a Jehovah's Witness that he's going to hell without the real Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness gets mad. You didn't expect him to pin any Sunday school medals on you, did you? You didn't expect the devil to recommend you for a heavenly congressional medal of honor. Of course not, because we are at war with the forces of darkness. The scripture says, put on the whole armor of God. What do you put armor on for if you're not in a war? And people say, well, it's unloving. You, you can't talk to people that way. Listen, the most loving being that ever walked this earth was the Son of God. Jesus Christ was love incarnate, love in human flesh. I want you to listen to love in human flesh when he met the cults and the false teachers of his day. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! On the outside, whitewashed sepulchers. On the inside, 
filled with rotting bones. You generation of slimy snakes, who has warned you to flee from the damnation of hell? You will look for me, but you will not find me. You will die in your sins, for where I am going, you cannot come. If you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. That is incarnate love. Now, you've simply got to wake up to the fact, as all Christians have to wake up to the fact, that we are born in conflict. We are at war with our own carnal natures. We are at war with the forces of darkness which rule this world. Our warfare isn't against flesh and blood, says the Apostle Paul, but against the spiritual rulers of the darkness of this age, against wickedness which is enthroned in the heavenly places. I charge you, he says, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are supposed to do what? Keep quiet in the presence of evil? No. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound teaching. We're here right now. They will accept anything but the gospel, because the gospel demands the submission of the total human being to the redemption of God. The gospel demands that you see yourself for what you really are, a lost sinner desperately in need of a savior. And men don't want this. They want anything else but the truth of the gospel. Therefore, it's the responsibility of the church to hold that message out, to reprove evil, to rebuke those that masquerade as Christians, to not be afraid to say that this is a ministry of Satan, that these are ministers of the devil, that they are transformed to look like Christians and sound like Christians and act like Christians, but denying the Lord Jesus Christ, they have put themselves outside the pale of Christianity. You are not going to convince the world it is the task of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will convince the world of sin, John 16, of righteousness and of judgment. Isn't it nice to know that it's not your job and it's not my job? Our job is to plant the seed of the Word of God. Our job is to tell people the truth. Our job is to tell it like it is, the way the church always did in her early days and all through the ages. We wouldn't have a Reformation if Martin Luther hadn't told it like it was. If he hadn't nailed the theses on the door, there wouldn't be a Reformation. There wouldn't be the great creeds of Christendom if the great theologians and fathers of the church didn't sit down and say, we've got to draw the line. This is God, and this is the devil. And you've got to make your choice. Joshua said it a long time ago. I don't know what the rest of you Jews are going to do, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, you're never going to please the world. Let's get that as a basic idea as we study the rise of the cults. You're never going to please the world. I'll prove it to you. John the Baptist came, neither eating nor drinking. And they said, who is this lunatic? And they cut off his head. John was an abstainer. Jesus Christ came. He was God incarnate. And he was a participator, a joiner. He was a friend of the publicans and the sinners and led the harlots to redemption. And what did they say about him? Behold, a gluttonous man and a heavy drinker. And they crucified him. Now, John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and he couldn't please the world by abstinence. 
Jesus Christ was God in human flesh and he couldn't please the world by participation. Now what makes you think you're going to please the world? You're not. So stop trying. Who cares what the Elks, the Kiwanis, the Oddfellows, the Masons, the Shriners, and everybody in his Uncle Harry's fraternal organization thinks of you? The only thing that makes any difference is what Christ thinks of you. And we've got to get back to that spirit of the church where we spoke the truth in love. Somebody says, well, you don't sound very loving when you talk this way. Jesus Christ was incarnate love, remember? And he told them exactly the way it was. The prophets told them exactly the way it was. Paul told them, the apostles, what they had to do, what they had to believe. We're no different today. The only problem with us today is we've lost our first love. We've lost our courage. We need a baptism of boldness from the Holy Spirit so that men may take knowledge of us today that we have been with Jesus, that we are not just people mouthing verses and platitudes, but that we recognize our responsibility, that we know there's a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit Holy Spirit, a counterfeit gospel. There are counterfeit apostles, counterfeit workmen. They have been minted by the prince of darkness, and they are in his image. On the outside, they look like the church. Inwardly, Jesus said, they are savage wolves. We have a responsibility. The responsibility of the law, of the prophets, of the Christ, and of the apostles. The responsibility to preach Jesus Christ and to defend by all lawful means the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. That's what's missing today in the Christian church. The moment you stand up for Jesus, you're the bad guy. The moment you defend the gospel, you're unloving. The moment that you put on the whole armor of God, you're contentious. But the people who do nothing and who have permitted the cults to grow to where they are today, here and on our mission fields, they're the good guys because nobody ever speaks an evil word about them. I remember the words of our Lord. He said, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. I will never have that problem. <laughs> you won't have that problem if you will take the defense of the gospel as a tremendously important and pressing thing, particularly in the closing days of the Age of Grace. Now, we also have to recognize that the cults, aside from being false prophets and false teachers, are souls for whom Christ died. We don't want to get so wound up facing the rise of the cults in resisting evil that we forget that the people who are in the cults are the victims of that evil. They are not the originators of it. We don't want to be angry and slam doors in the faces of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormon missionaries. We don't want to alienate Christian scientists and religious scientists. We don't want to turn Scientologists and est people off. We want to win people to Christ. Granted, it's necessary to tell it like it is. But while you're doing it, don't forget that Jesus always stopped to respond to people's needs. He condemned evil, but he cultivated the salvation of his audience and wanted them to come to redemption. We've got to love the people in the cults. We've got to see this awesome spectacle in front of us. We've got to recognize the challenges here and the time to respond to it is now, not a hundred years from now, but in the process of response, 
We don't want to push people out of the kingdom of heaven. We want to show them that the gospel reaches out to them, that Christ can meet their need, and that they can be reborn spiritually. I'm here to tell you today that in the last 30 years of my ministry, I have seen thousands and thousands of cultists and occultists come out of the kingdom of Satan and into the glorious liberation of the kingdom of God. I'm here to tell you that God honors his word. If you will plant the seed, if you will water it with prayer, if you are not weary in doing what is well and good in the sight of God, if you are patient and loving and compassionate, and if you will be inflexible in the authority of the scriptures and the demands of God on the lives of men, God will open the windows of heaven and pour out in your life and testimony and ministry as a Christian blessings that you will be unable to contain. I know. I've been there. I was lecturing not too long ago in a large church in Denver, and after the service, a group of people came up to me and surrounded me on the platform. I didn't know who they were. They said, we've driven quite a number of miles. We want to talk with you. I said, about what? They said, about your ministry. I said, what do you want to talk about? I was a little uneasy. I didn't know what they were getting at. And they said, we're former cultists. I'm a witch, former witch. I'm former Jehovah's Witness. We're former Mormons. They listed about 10 cults that they all belong to. And they said, we're here tonight to tell you how grateful we are that somebody cared enough to tell us the truth. The Jehovah's Witnesses always complain to Christians are the first to slam the doors in their faces. Why? Whatever happened to the Great Commission? Go into all the world and make disciples. You've got a mission field on your doorstep. People that are knocking to get into your house to learn about Jesus. You don't have to go anywhere. All you have to do is open the door and say, come on in, I've been waiting for you. The shock is liable to paralyze them out of the doorstep. They don't get these kind of receptions from Christians. Well, that, that is the name of the game. And I thought for a moment, and I turned to them, and I said, tell me something. When you were cultists and occultists, what did you think of my tapes and books and of me when you heard me lecture? All their faces changed. And almost in unison, they said, we hated you. You were the most arrogant, conceited, dogmatic person we ever met in our lives. And they went on with a whole bunch of other criticisms of me. And I said, what happened when you came to the Lord Jesus Christ? And the faces just creased with smiles and they said, we love you, Brother Martin. And they hugged me and hugged me and hugged me. Do you see the difference? The difference is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes into their hearts, into their lives, he transforms them. It isn't something on the outside only. It's from the inside out. If anyone be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. And all things are from God, who has reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. We're dealing with the cults. We're dealing with human beings, flesh and blood, with needs, frustrations, perils in their own lives, fear. But complete love casts out fear. And if you can be Christ to them, if you can love them enough to tell them the truth, stand your ground, be built up in the faith, and communicate your compassion, you will have the priceless privilege of leading them out of the darkness of the kingdom of the cults and into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Changes all the way 
through and he changes us and he makes us in his own image to be like him that we should see him as he is what is the condition of the people in the cults i didn't say it the apostle paul did second corinthians 4 4 if our gospel be hid it is hid to them that are lost in whom the god of this age has blinded the minds of them that believe not lest the glorious light of the gospel of christ who is the image of god should shine unto them the condition of the unbeliever is spiritual darkness there is no penetration of the gospel and they know not god and obey not jesus christ what a priceless opportunity we are the light of the world no i'm not being arrogant jesus said as long as i am in the world i'm the light of the world but he said i'm leaving the world and he turned to his disciples and said you are the light of the world well if we're the light of the world Let's communicate that light. A city that's set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Now, there are people that just have an unrealistic idea about the cults. They expect the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon missionary on his bicycle to come up to the door. They open the door, and the cultist says, I am a cultist. Look at the fangs. Look at the claws. And then the Christian's going to know, oh, that's what you are. Well, now I can talk to you. Satan transforms himself so that he looks like an angel of light. And when the cultist comes up to the door, you're going to get a nice bleeding little sheep. You're not going to get a wolf. But if you don't know the difference between fleece and fur, you're going to lose your arm up to the elbow, patting what you think is a sheep. Because the kingdom of the cults is big leagues. It's not sandlot best baseball. It's a challenge. And you've got to respond to that challenge. You've got to know not only what you believe, you've got to know why you believe it. Most Christians know what they believe. But they don't know why. And it's frightening. But the average cultist can take a King James version of the Bible and reduce the average Christian to a blithering idiot in about 20 minutes. And the Christian knows it's wrong and the Christian wants to do something about it, but the Christian knows what he believes, but he doesn't know why. We've got to know both of them. You get that by study, not by osmosis. You get it by getting into the Word of God, study and show thyself approved by God, a workman who doesn't need to blush with embarrassment, rightly interpreting the Word of Truth. Now, there are characteristics of the cults, things that you ought to know about them. When we see Jonestown, we see 912 corpses. Remember something. The 912 corpses remind you of the errors of cultism. It wasn't until then that the American people in the world could see cultism for what it really was. Of course, all cults aren't like Jim Jones. But just the same, there are some frightening things. Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church, for instance. He was quoted in Time Magazine. And he said it was better to kill yourself than to leave the truths of the Unification Church. Again, in the secret sayings of Master Moon to the young people that flock after him, quote, I am your brain, close quote. What happens to people at Jonestown? What happens to the Moonies? What happens to the Krishna people? What happens to the people in the cult? They start out perfectly normal people and they end up as spiritually dead and mentally blinded to the truth of the gospel. It's almost as if you're shooting BBs off a brick wall. You feel you're not penetrating. You are, for the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than the two-edged sword. It will penetrate to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, 
It will discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, there are various groups of cults and various cultic structures, and perhaps we ought to take just a moment to notice some of these types of cults. There are, first of all, apocalyptic cults, cults like Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, the LDS, and the Children of God, who began by talking about the end of the world and the coming of Christ. Particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses have already done this at least seven times, and they have missed it seven times. Armageddon Incorporated does not have a good uh, prophetic scoreboard. Also, the Mormon prophets taught that Jesus would come back before the end of the 19th century. He didn't. So they were false prophets. These are apocalyptic cults. They talk about revelation and the end of the world. There's a second group, which are called the mind science, or the healing cults. Christian science, unity, metaphysics, religious science, or science of mind. These are the people that capitalize on healing. Wherever the church fails to emphasize some strong point of the gospel message, the cults come in and proceed to emphasize it without the truth of the gospel. You know, Satan's in the healing business, as we're going to find out in our further studies, and a miracle doesn't really prove anything unless the miracle is utilized for the expansion of the gospel and the redemption of the souls of men. Otherwise, you can have satanic miracles. You say, where did you get that from? From Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 24, and from the apostle Paul. All power signs and lying wonders will deceive the world at the consummation of the ages. We're told these things. And then, of course, we have the self-help or the instant analysis cults. These are the people in Scientology, Est, Silver Mind Control, who tell you if you only will put your mind in their untutored, untrained, and disorganized hands, they will solve all of the problems for you relatively instantly. That will not do you any good, because if psychologists and psychiatrists have difficulty, with the techniques of modern medicine in helping you with your mental processes, can you imagine what success you're going to have, as in Scientology, hanging on to a couple of tin cans connected to a type of galvanometer and having some untrained auditor tell you that you have imprints on your soul from your previous reincarnations? Oh, that's going to do wonders for you if it doesn't, in the end, unbalance you totally. These are the self-help, the instant analysis cultists. Then we have the Eastern Oriental, or what I call the exotic cults. That's Transcendental Meditation, Baha'ism, the Self-Realization Fellowship, ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, and of course, Nishiran Shoshu Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. In the United States, transplanted from other places with an exotic appeal. There must be something exotic, I think, to sitting with your legs crossed on a rug with your hair in your eyes and meditating as you sniff incense about what's going on in your inner you. You know, you turn yourself inward to the place where eventually you think that that's all there is. The cults that turn you inward instead of upward to Christ are the cults that are telling you you're part of God and most of them are derived from Hinduism and from Hindu sources. And we'll be studying this as we progress in our lectures. And then, of course, we have the communal cults, or the youth-oriented cults. We have the Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon, the Children of God, or the Family of Love of Moses David Berg, 
and Iskan, of course, the Krishna people, and multiple other ones. People sometimes say to me, how many cults are there? Probably thousands. And they're springing up constantly. But the Church of Jesus Christ has something the cults don't have. They can give you temporary peace, but Jesus said, I will give you a peace that the world cannot give you. I will show you how to come out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. When you do that, Christ transforms. There's nothing more beautiful than transformed cultists who witness for the power of Jesus Christ. I had a case of this a few years ago that thrilled my soul. A Jehovah's Witness lady, one of their top people on Long Island, came to Christ. And she gathered all her books together from her 11 and a half years at the Watchtower, invited all the Watchtower people over and burned them. Just as they did at Ephesus. She had a, she had a book burning. Burned it all up. Then she went to the Kingdom Hall and preached Jesus Christ and his resurrection and led four Jehovah's Witnesses out of the Kingdom Hall to Jesus Christ. Then she took a list of all the people that she had visited for 11 years. And she went house to house, knocking on the doors, just as she had as a Jehovah's Witness. I'm your friendly Jehovah's Witness. Ex-Jehovah's Witness. I told you a lot of stuff that wasn't true. Let me tell you about the real Jesus. And she witnessed all those people. Took her years to do it. And finally, two Mormon missionaries peddled up to her door and made the mistake of knocking. She said, come right in. I used to be a cultist too. I want to tell you about Jesus. And she brought them in and led both the Mormon missionaries to Christ. She's now a baptized member of a Christian church. The pastor said he wishes she had 50 of them because nothing would be safe. She was turned on to the real Jesus, the real Holy Spirit, and the real gospel. Now, there are characteristics of the cults, and I think what we ought to do is just briefly let you observe them and get an idea, a feel, for what's going on in the cults. The cults are, first of all, always adding things to the Bible. So you can always find out a cult because it has extra-biblical literature. It will always add something. In the case of the Mormons, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. In the case of Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower literature and study helps. In the case of Christian Science, Mrs. Eddy's books. And in the case of Science of Mind, uh, Holmes' books. All of them add material to the Scripture to interpret it. But they don't really interpret it. They confuse it so that they end up giving you an alien gospel. Secondly, cults are usually polarized around a very strong or dynamic leader. And these individuals control their followers so that the person's focus begins with the Bible and ends up with the guru. Now, Congressman Ryan's daughter, the man who was killed by Jim Jones's murder squad, was recently interviewed in People magazine and she is now a member of a Hindu cult. They asked her on television the other night, would you lie for the cult? Well, I don't know. Would you commit suicide for the cult? I'd have to think about that. Would you kill for your guru? I don't know. Here's a normal girl in a few short period of years who is now at the place where she doesn't know. And her father's blood cries out from the ground. On the same basis, she is now enslaved as she was, or I should say, as the people were in Guyana under Jim Jones. Now, this strong leader leads the people away from the gospel by focusing on himself and his own interpretations. And then, cults demand that you believe 
in their inner revelations. They always have revelations and things which supplant the Bible. You've got to go along with it. You've got to believe it. And again, another addition to this, their new revelations contradict the Bible, but they emphasize them so much that pretty soon the new revelations supplant the Bible. Now you also have to believe, and you have to understand, that a cultist, and one of the great characteristics of them, as I said, is that they have discipline. They just don't take you in because you raise your hand in a church meeting and get baptized. They take you in when they have become convinced that you are dedicated to the service of the cult. The Moonies are out there collecting money. The Krishna people are out there collecting, collecting money. They're all out there working, working, working for the cult. That's a characteristic you never want to forget. Isolation is another one. They're isolated from their families, from their friends, from the culture in which they live. Another characteristic is their vocabulary. It's an in-house vocabulary. They have their own specific meanings for terms. For instance, you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they'll ask you, have you been in the truth long? For the Jehovah's Witness, the truth is the watchtower. And if you're outside the watchtower, you're outside of the truth. There are many other types of characteristics. We don't have time to go into all of them. But the cults are withdrawn. They turn inward. They're introverted. And they alienate themselves from people and culture so that they may give forth their particular brand of cultic philosophy. Finally, what is the church to do in the face of all this? We cannot any longer be apathetic. We cannot any longer dare to be lethargic. We've got to take the words of Christ seriously. Beware of the false prophets. And remember something. Sometimes people will say to you, well, Jesus said that a corrupt tree couldn't bring forth good fruit. Look at all the good things that a lot of the cults do. That must make them Christian. No. There are two kinds of fruit in the Bible. The fruit of life and the fruit of teaching. You can have a perfect life and you're teaching from the pit of hell. And you can have perfect doctrine from heaven and your life a living contradiction. Either way, you're a false prophet, a hypocrite, and a false teacher. Christ warned us of this and told us to be sure of our own commitment, to study and show ourselves approved. We are urged consistently to grow up to the full maturity and the strength that is in Christ Jesus. And if you're going to effectively combat the cults, remember your ultimate source of power, the Word of God and 1 John 4.4. 4. You have overcome them, little children. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world.